the Chinese government it was probably a little bit comforted by the fact that Dr. Li has died, and therefore it can then appropriate uh, Dr. Li's death for its own propaganda purposes. Because you know, if Dr. Li was still alive, then it can continue to make criticism of the government. Then the government will not be able to actually use Dr. Li in the way that it has. Hello and welcome to China Talk, now posted on Lawfare. I'm your host, Jordan Schneider, here today with the Nate Tan crew to talk coronavirus domestic CCP messaging and Australia-China relations. Also, if anyone has an ad budget, please reach out. We're slashing our rates here at China Talk. Adam Yi and Yun Jiang are both ex-Aussie government officials who've recently started their own think tank. Adam and Yun, welcome to China Talk. Thanks Thank for having us, much. Jordan. So let's take it back to December 2019. Would you two like to walk me through the official timeline of the coronavirus? We heard about the coronavirus probably around December. Retrospectively, they found they detect the coronavirus around early December, late November, I think. And the first thing most people heard about this is actually when people were detained for spreading rumors. So at that time, the virus has not been officially confirmed, but people got detained for spreading rumors. So something was going on, and. The only got officially confirmation of the virus outbreak was in mid January when there was a central directive from Xi Jinping. So that's when everything happened. That's when you know we start to shut down cities, we start to seeing building of hospitals, and the government, machinery government, start to push all their effort towards containing the virus. For a while there, there was a. Quite a lot of、uh, report from independent journalists, from citizen journalists. But two weeks after that, there was a crackdown of reporting as well. So every information then becomes centralized again. I think the the most important points for me are that it was. I think I think there was an imperative by the local authorities to 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 not report the bad news and to actively suppress the the, the reporting. An investigation by by Chinese journalists, citizen journalists, and doctors and and others. So I think I think these efforts do reflect the features of the Chinese system, but but as well as you know the local political calendar at the time, which、um, came into play with the with the you know local Lianghui. Sure. So let's um.、Uh, so let's focus. Let's focus in on that sort of late December, early January period before she said that this is actually a big deal and the country is going to need to to really change its、uh, modus operandi to get、uh, a handle on the disease. So you know, one of the、uh, most incredible documents that come out of this is this、uh, Renwu article in which Ai Fen, one of the original whistleblowers, a doctor and a one of the Wuhan hospitals, which was hardest hit, her sort of telling her story. So the salient quote to me was when she sent out a medical report of someone who had this very curious SARS-like disease, ended up getting called in by her hospital's control department head and got the strongest reprimand of her career. The quote she had of this. This like Lauban telling her was that quote we can't hold our heads up when we go out for a meeting. The doctor criticized us, saying that she's a professional and she has no principles and no sense of team discipline to go out and stir rumors and stir up trouble.、Mm-hmm. So what 
what are the factors or what is it about the the system that plays that ripples down to a, a local hospital administrator reprimanding one of their uh, longtime practitioners for talking about a potentially new infectious disease? We'll be talking about the case of Dr. Liwan now a bit later, but I think the the parallel in this case or in these two cases is that politics seems to have played a really important part. So, you know, under on any other circumstances, you might have the the, the managers, administrators, and the politicians listening to the doctors, but in this case, we see numerous examples of where really politics and and, and bureaucracy playing and bureaucratic factors rather play an important part. So in this case, it's about not stirring trouble to um, prevent the flow of bad news upward. Mm-hmm. I, I really do think that the early misstep is, is is not just local authorities suppressing whistleblowers or individual doctors, but it's a result of some systemic issues of the Chinese system. We also need to think that about this more broadly, because really no one likes to be the bearer of bad news. And we have seen cases, not just in China, but other, elsewhere, that um, the messenger of the bad news gets all the downside risks, but no rewards, so no upside rewards. And speaking truth to power has always been a very dangerous action for individuals. Of course, the prevailing incentive uh, in China and elsewhere is to reduce major problems to minor ones and minor ones to nothing. So the so mentality of 大事化小,小事化了. And the thing is that most of the time, the problems do get go away by themselves. But occasionally, they turn yeah. into bigger problems, such as this case. And whistleblowers, such as Dr. Lee or Dr. Ai, well, they generally pay a severe and negative consequence for their actions. It is even more so the problem in China because there is no freedom press. And going against the government directly can one, get you blacklist for future employment, and two, you may even get jailed. So those kind of pressure is not present in um, some other countries where there is democracy. But even in democratic countries, whistleblowing and speaking truth power is difficult as well. Totally. I mean, just just being on Twitter these past few days, seeing American nurses being fired because they complain that they're not, that, you know, that the their hospital administrators are upset with them wearing their own masks right. is sort of the same dynamic, except that that video is allowed to go viral. And That's then exactly the that. sort of, you know, the, 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 the time it gets that these um, issues get processed is much faster because there is a more open media yeah. environment. It's so depressing. <laughs> yes, so, yes. Well, when when we first, you know, looking at things in China, we thought, oh, you know, the, the authoritarian government is not handling this very well. It's quite depressing, the consequences coming out of it. And now we're seeing a lot of same mistakes being repeated in the United States, in Australia. It is very, mm. very depressing. So let's let's talk about the second the second whistleblower Liang who unfortunately passed away mm-hmm. and has now become a a real tug of war in the in the internal domestic propaganda space. So what happened there and what's the and how is the government trying to neutralize the example he set? Well, I think the Chinese government it was probably a little bit comforted by the fact that Dr. Li 
has died, and therefore it can then appropriate uh, Dr. Lee's death for its own propaganda purposes. Because you know, if Dr. Lee was still alive, then it can continue to make criticism of the government. Then the government will not be able to actually use Dr. Lee in the way that it has. Yeah. But because mm-hmm. Dr. Lee has died, it can no longer voice its oppositions anymore. Then I guess from government's perspective, that is a time when you can really use Dr. Lee to show Dr. Lee as a you know a national hero, a martyr, which is the things uh, the, the framing we're seeing right now. I think there's two sides to this. On the one side, the death of Dr. Lee led to an outpouring of grief and frustration among the Chinese netizens. And, you know, I was awake that night on following Chinese social media and certainly it's, it's been a long time since I last saw that kind of um, outpouring of anger towards uh, the authorities. So I think you know, Dr. Lee has has become a really important figure in the current um, narratives about about the virus. And on the other side, as Ring has had, has said, the party is trying to appropriate the legacy of Dr. Lee, you know, reclaiming him as a good party member, as a, a working selflessly against the virus, instead of as somebody who's blowing whistle or rather against the system. So they certainly put a lot of effort into interpreting Dr. Lee's actions and his legacy and also making it uh, very clear that there's only one interpretation of Dr. Lee's actions and legacies, and that is the one set down by the party. We saw when he died that there was a call for freedom of speech in China on the internet, but the Chinese government obviously would not allow this to become a catalyst for change. So what it does is it redirects the attention, redirects the energy of the people or the grief towards co-opting the narrative, towards casting him in the role of a national hero as opposed to a whistleblower. I think Dr. Lee has really been cast as a almost a selfless martyr in the people's war against the relentless virus that China's been fighting, right? So he's been cast in a new newer light as opposed to you know the the very common understanding of dr lee at the time at the time which was you know a doctor walking on the front lines and somebody who had the conscience to warn his friends that something's uh, a mysterious virus is happening and was censured for it and was gagged um, by the authorities for, for for doing that we also see recently that there was an official exoneration apology to Dr. Lee. So I think that shows that, I think that shows, you know, one on the one side, putting the blame onto local authority for what happened to Dr. Lee and two, basically co-opting Dr. Lee. That's another way of co-opting Dr. Lee by issuing an official apology. Hmm. Well, one second, Ying. So it's not really an apology because oh. it, like in, in no way did it, Kind of no, take... sorry, it wasn't an apology. It was. Uh... I don't think there was actually a an apology. There, there was indeed a verdict by China's National Supervisory Commission investigating sorry, into yeah, the saga. Yeah, a verdict. And, yeah. Yeah, and what it really said was that it, that it was 
irregular law enforcement procedure at the very local level. So it specifically referred to a few policemen, a few rather public security officials that are In responsible the local for police this. station. That's right, very local police station. In fact, not even a proper policeman. There were something like exenery or, yeah, like very, very much, very junior. Um, yeah. Very jun- junior officers. And so I now think, we have found think, someone to blame. And and now, you know, the, public The 23-year-olds. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's exactly. Very, it's a, it's a very uh, common thing to do when whenever something goes wrong, you blame the intern, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think this is an attempt uh, to distance distance the party from from what happened, from to to kind of differentiate the party the party from you know the, the local level, the local authorities, or rather, in this case, this very specific personnel that was responsible for this. And really, the subtext here is to say. It wasn't a systemic failure, rather it was individuals. The, the individuals that made the yeah. mistake. So aside from the specific sort of Wuhan local government dynamics, what other narratives is the government trying to push domestically? And just for the record, we're recording this on April 2nd. Yeah. Well, um, one um, big thing is that, so, so at first, you know, we, we saw it was trying to suppress information now it's turned to you know to unify people by talking about doctors as heroes and now we're seeing the next stage which is compare china's response to response of countries especially the united states because um from for, from china's perspective from china's perspective the united states is a peer competitor to china and it wants China, Chinese government, wants to demonstrate that it can handle things better than the United States. So two things that it's got going in terms of propaganda. One is that the Chinese government um, what it, uh, may have done things that's not perfect, but at least it has done better than the West or the United States. And secondly, in the, we don't know whether the origin of the virus is in from China. Therefore, you shouldn't blame China. And we're, instead, we're helping countries around the world to handle this crisis. Now, of course, most evidence, almost all the evidence point that to the China origin of the virus. But what the Chinese government is doing is to really saying, we're not here to blame, but we're here to help. Yeah. Yeah. So if I might just add to that. So I think there's a difference between the well the, the, there's the domestic and international aspects of the mm. of, of the propaganda effort so domestically it's about it's about deflecting the blame it's about mm. suppressing voices that highlights the failings of China's political system and the party especially the miss the early missteps by the local authorities yeah and 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 systemic systemic issues with the system about you know the pressures on local cadres to to not report bad news and to to suppress these voices that are in their view causing trouble. The second big element of this propaganda is uh, the feel good aspect, the 
uh, you know, we're, we're, we're unified, we're carrying out a people's war, we're helping each other under the leadership of the party state. So very much a nationalistic, very much nationalistic rendering of the narrative. So, yeah, certainly le- leveraging uh, nationalism to deflect blame as well as to unify the Chinese populace. Yeah, uh, but I also I think that a lot of propaganda targeted, seemingly targeted at the international audience, has a very big domestic focus as well. And we see yeah. that a lot of mm. things, a lot of Chinese, uh, uh, there's a section of the Chinese population that's quite willingly to believe that the elsewhere as well, that US is behind everything, the United States is behind everything. And that section of the audience is probably very prone to conspiracy theories. And we're seeing that it may be quite successful at targeting that section of the audience, even when it is also targeting foreign um, audience for its propaganda purposes. Do you guys care to engage in some wild speculation on to what extent all of this messaging will end up working and whether anyone you know, on the mainland is, is going to fundamentally change their view of the, the current system? I think propaganda such as it is, it is quite successful in one way. It plays to existing prejudices. So people who already believe that, you know, US, United States is evil and is the mastermind behind all the things that's bad, they will already willingly believe in conspiracy theory that the United States has a manufactured bioweapon. It's the same in the United States yeah. as well. You know, mm. People who willingly believe, who already think that China is evil and is a mastermind behind everything bad that has happened will also believe that China has made biological weapons. So it just, I think it just amplifies the existing prejudices. I'm not sure if it really would change people's mind, like if someone who used to believe US is evil and behind everything now suddenly will believe China is evil and behind everything. China's effort of introducing doubt as to where the virus comes from, I don't think it's I don't think it's very convincing for anybody that's you know following the virus that has been reading the news, but it does create doubt, especially when amplified by misinformation and conspiracy theorists in other countries. Right, it introduces that element of doubt that's amplified through modern technology and social media and what have you. Uh, well, yeah. conspiracy theories are often caught by the state, by the government to to promote a certain views. I think with regards to the origin of the virus, it probably would work more successfully domestically than internationally because if you are in China, you probably don't want the virus to be originated in China either. So they probably already have an inclination to want to believe that the origin of the virus is elsewhere. Mm. So do you think this experience of the virus changes at all Xi's mindset or the way the government goes about its work? Mm. Yeah, I I mean, I think there's two aspects to it. The first aspect is about control. And that is about the government's ability to to ensure that it can watch what the population is doing. So in this case, I think the, the lesson that, well, one of the lessons that Beijing got was 
we really have to understand what is happening on the local level um, in terms of you know public health, and and that kind of argues for more data, for more surveillance, for more reporting, for more technology that that helps the central government keeps keeps track of individuals as well as the local as well as its local cadres. So I think that you know argues for a more pervasive pervasive surveillance system the other one of course is more internationally focused and that is i think covid-19 is impressing on on chinese leaders the idea that uh, the world is that the world is not going to always be as interconnected and globalized as as it is 6 months ago as it is today there there could be radical changes in a very short period of time that that that, that breaks these uh, connections. So are you saying, saying it may lead to more intentional decoupling? Intentionally, yes, um, perhaps, but more so in terms of resilience, I think, or self-reliance, I think. Self-reliance. Yeah, you know, China very much very much believe, believes, or Chinese leaders rather, very much believes in the idea of self-reliance. And I think the economic and supply chain and also travel challenges that's created by COVID nineteen is going to emphasize is going to emphasize that. The two points you've raised are very good, and we're also seeing this trend elsewhere, not just in China, but I suspect more so in China. You know, one is about control. Now we that the genie control genie out of the bottle that it's very hard to put it back. Surveillance efforts, controlling of the population, of where they're going, of enforcing them to stay at home. I think those are the things that the Chinese government probably will take notes about. And we're also seeing elsewhere, including Australia, that you know we're seeing a lot of increased police powers as well. Law enforcement agencies getting more power. So this state versus individual liberty issue is probably going to be quite prominent. Second one you talked about was about trade and self-reliance. And we're seeing a lot of calls not just in China, but also in a lot of other countries about supply chain, about being self-reliant, including for things like essential medical supplies. And even on mm-hmm. the individual level, you know, now all the seeds are sold out. I'm talking about gardening here. All the seeds are sold out in stores because people are suddenly uh, wanting to become self-reliant by planting herbs and vegetables. So that has filtered down through individual level things that, you know, people are just doing everything to be more self-reliant, to be almost like into apocalyptic prepping mindset. Another potential lesson, which may not be taken out of this, is the, um, you know, importance of what Tyson et al. did in those few weeks where they had uh, sort of freedom to operate and really dig for the truth of what was actually happening. What's your sense of the, the government's read on that that episode in time? There's a way to look at what Tyson did, Tyson et al., in the first few weeks of the virus in Wuhan as this incredible public service of, you know, getting information out of a system which has a really hard time sort of reporting reporting information up and down. So I guess my question is, like, what do you think is the is the is the government's take on the role that media played in this you know coronavirus situation and how you think the domestic media environment will evolve moving forward 
So Tyson did an incredible job around January when you know the, the outbreak was uh, first publicly acknowledged. There was a lot of reports about the extent of the problem and also focusing on the sufferings of the people as opposed to state media, which was focused on about heroic efforts by the people, especially the doctors and the construction workers. In terms of how the media landscape in the future, I think one, we, okay. we, we, we look at one is that the government really cracked down on independent media reporting after at the end of January. So clearly it does not like the fact that it does not control all the narrative. What do you think, Adam? I think Tai Xin did, did an incredible job at pursuing and pursuing stories on COVID-19. And, you know, some of the stuff that came out was absolutely fantastic human stories, investigative reporting that really held the local government to account in piecing together what was said, what was done, official meetings, official documents. So they did a really, really good job in, in what media in a, in a liberal democracy is meant to do, which is to hold government to account and inform the public. And for a good two weeks, they did that. And I think they had the liberty to do that because China's propaganda system was in was in disarray, rather, the censors and the censors and the propagandists were still at a time when, when they were still trying to work out the message. Right. And in a way that investigative reporting and more free reporting had a much greater value to the central government at that time in, you know, in giving them access to information that they otherwise uh, wouldn't, wouldn't have, or at least through, through the usual, usual channels. But I think ultimately, you know, the party is really going back to its basics, which is the suppression of independent voices, the control of the mediums of information, but as well as the, the producer of content using a variety of hard and soft levers. So I don't, I think on the Xi, we're unlikely to see in the foreseeable future a loosening loosen your media freedom if anything i think there's going to be a push to 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 tighten to tighten media media freedom in such a way that the state would um, be better to to dictate its its narrative but of course i think i, think I, th- I if i could just make one more point yeah. here and that is i think it's very difficult for the state to for the party state to consistently successfully manage the narrative because of unforeseen events because of its it, its old concepts of of propaganda it's increasingly getting better but you know but given the size of china the diversity of opinion and the creativity of the people to get around the senses it's it's very hard to control a narrative it takes massive amount of effort it's also worthwhile to remember that one of the citizen journalists in Wuhan, Chen Qiushi, I think he is still missing or under detention. So clearly the pressure on media has not really eased at all. I think another worthwhile thing to remember with Chinese media is there's also almost a central local tension in media as reflected in um, political system. So, for example, local media may have to report to local government so they on local issues they may not 
as free to report as some other medium. So then we have independent media from elsewhere who probably is has more degree of freedom to maneuver in a city that is not based in. So those are the, some kind of details and ten- tensions that's interesting to see from this COVID-19 episode as well. Let's take a hard left turn and and focus a bit on China-Australia relations. So why don't you guys tell me where to start? What are the key dynamics that all the ignorant American listeners should know about what exactly are the salient dynamics between the two countries? Mm, okay, well, China is Australia's biggest trading partner. And... What people are concerned about, what news about China until recently has almost all about China's economy and our trade with it. Australia sees China's role mostly as a buyer of our exports, and that's mostly in minerals, mining sector. Now also in, for example, education, tourism, and agriculture producers. So from Australia's perspective, it usually almost exclusively sees China as a source of revenue. And it is actually the reason why Australia, unlike many other countries in the West, we have not had a recession in 2008. So we had a continuous economic growth for a very long time, more than 20 years. But now, more recently, there has been increased concerns, especially among national security community, about China's role. And as it's becoming more powerful, we're seeing more concerns about its exercise of power inside Australia, especially its influence and interference activities that has been on the news almost every day. Australia is very anxious about China's military power in the region as well. And this anxiety is linked to our military alliance with the United States, which is has been has very long-standing. And we know that the United States has designated China as a strategic competitor. So there is a, but a lot of debate in Australia about what does that mean for Australia. Another angle is that China is also a very large source of migrants for Australia. And Adam and I are both migrants to Australia from China. Uh, 5.6% of people in Australia describe their ancestry as Chinese in the last census, which is the highest Hmm. non-British, non-Australian ancestry. But it's important to actually remember that Australia had a white Australia policy right from the Federation, from when Australia started in 1901 to as recently as 70s. So this racial tension is, we're now seeing a flaring up of that recently because of COVID as well. What, what does that mean? What is a white Australian policy? It's a series of legislations and policies and attitude essentially blocking off Asian um, Asians from migrating to Australia and favoring white European migrants. Yeah, so it's, it's mostly immigration policy. So, so one of the one of the dynamics with such a large population that has a connection to the to to the mainland are these fears of interference and spies and 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 influence on on WeChat and social media. You guys recently wrote a report about these issues. Uh, I'm curious, first off, maybe starting with what do you think the CCP's goals are when it comes to influencing Australian opinion, and how good are they at it? The goal of okay, sure. all foreign influence um, activities is to make foreign governments' policies more favorable 
to China or to any other uh, country. That's the goal of all influence activities. And that includes legitimate activities such as diplomacy, public communication, and to illegitimate activities, including bribery, coercion, intimidation. But they all share the same goal, which is to make the foreign government choose enact policies more favorable. What are the key hot points that, that the Chinese government is trying to influence opinion on? So there is another one uh, target for the Chinese government in particular when it comes to in Australian diaspora is that they also target at the Chinese diaspora uh, to keep the diaspora loyal to China while minimizing criticism from uh, the diaspora community because the diaspora community has actually historically been a source of agitation for change and reform inside China. So the Chinese government does not necessarily trust the diaspora community very much. So what it does it want is to, you know, the public communication to keep it loyal and also use intimidation tactics, including pressuring their families inside China to keep them more compliant to Chinese government's interests. I suppose on a, on a quite general level, China's influence and interference activities are aimed at paving a way for more for for policies and choices that are more conducive to Chinese interests, whether that be in the security realm or um, in, in the economic realm or in terms of public opinion. We recently wrote a submission to the Australian Senate on on China's China's interference activities through um, social media. So, you know, in our submission, we talked about how China is not a big actor in manipulating social media that it, that are in English, but increasingly it is becoming more active and uh, we think that in the foreseeable future it would be the source of the biggest the biggest threat. You know, we saw that in terms of uh, COVID. We saw that we saw that in terms of Hong Kong, the protests in Hong Kong and the U.S. China uh, trade war. So increasingly, we're seeing examples of of the, the the Chinese Party State being more active on on English language social media in manipulating, in trying to influence and manipulate these platforms. One thing we need to really be clear about in this foreign influence interference debate, and I want to emphasize that because. This debate has become quite almost emotional in Australia. So that there is a difference between foreign interference and interference, foreign influence and interference. Um, interference is seen as illegitimate activities. It's a subset of influence activity. So we're, while we're trying to combat interference activities in Australia, we should not necessarily want to stop legitimate influence such as, you know, diplomacy. I think that's quite proper to, to have legitimate influence and every, every government does it. And another thing we really need to remember when it comes to this debate is that often the, the Chinese diaspora communities are victims of interference activities and we should really see them as, well, we should see them as part of the solution, part of the Australian society, part of solution in when we're combating interference and not see them as, you know, a vector of interference. I think it's certainly taken a toll on the Chinese diaspora community in Australia, and it, it's 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 leading to increased racialized narrative. And we see this most recently in terms of 
convid about Chinese people Chinese people buying up medical supplies, for example, or at least at least that's the and sending it to China. At least that's the narrative um, that that's been put out by a few media. So I, th- I definitely think in any kind of discussions, we need to be conscious of um, of the facts and the evidence, uh, as well as just to ensure that we're, we're we're not harming the Chinese diaspora community. And I see um, there's a recent op-ed by Andrew Young in the United States about you know Asian Americans, and I think the points are quite relevant here. In Australia as well, because there is also a call for Chinese Australians in Australia to, you know, demonstrate their loyalty to Australia, as if you know, without demonstration, some kind of loyalty were not full Australians. So that debate is also happening in Australia as well, just like in the United States. You know, Chinese Australians should be seen as Australians. They they don't need necessarily they don't need to do anything over the top to demonstrate their loyalty. They they are entitled to opinions just like all other Australians. I think our, our China debate needs to uh, really needs to move beyond the kind of uh, narratives that focus on pro-China or anti-China, but to recognize the existence of the People's Republic and how how much it influences Australian interests and well-being. And to really and to really grapple with the with with I guess the most important foreign foreign policy question today in Australia, which is how do we navigate the treacherous strait in a in a fast changing world between the United States and China, and you know in the context of strategic flux. Let's close on the process of doing research about the Chinese government. So you two guys recently uh, republished a Holly Snape's uh, Researching Party Documents Guide, which I encourage everyone out there to uh, check out on the Nathan newsletter. But I guess I'm curious, aside from the specifics that that goes into, you know, with where to search for certain things, what sort of broader advice do you have about the mindset that people should um, take when trying to understand Chinese government policy? Yeah, I think I think the biggest point from me is that you need to go and read these documents in in Chinese. So it's it's interesting that I think the the CCP is is actually fairly honest in the sense that it's very meticulous about documentation, about writing out what it thinks and it wants to achieve. So a lot of the stuff is actually just out there for people to read. So I would just simply say, go and read these documents in their original Chinese. I agree with that. Totally agree with that. I think if you want to uh, understand Chinese policy, read what the Chinese government or the CCP say about itself, really understand how institutions work. But also you need to really think about the incentives at play for, you know, individuals in, within the system, for people at local level, for people at central level, for people at provincial level, and how those incentives can be tempered by culture and institutions. But really just to, you know, it's not a Chinese people or the Chinese system is not an alien system. It's out there. You can um, understand it. Just have to put in the effort.
any any particular topics you think need um, more people from outside China digging deep on? Hmm. So my my day job is on the PLA, so I, I do uh, research on China's military. But where in my spare time, I look at party historiography, so how uh, the party thinks about history. You just stole my answer. I was going to say history as well. How history well, is written, go. how history is rewritten. That is, I think, the most important thing to understand about uh, any society is how it sees itself, how it sees history. Adam and Yun, thanks so much for coming on China Talk. Thanks Thank you so much.